Welcome to Authentic Living with Roxanne, a place where we have conscious conversations about things that really matter in our lives. And now, here's your host, Roxanne Derhage. It's uh, Roxanne Durhodge. Welcome to Authentic Living and World with Roxanne. This week, I have a colleague, uh, Jason Finucane, uh, that uh, is based in Montreal that will speak to us today. Uh, Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. <laughs> so Jason, um, is um, he speaks on uh, mental health, and I'm going to just read a little bit of his bio, bio on some of the things that he's done. Um, upcoming really, really soon, he's releasing his first book, which is uh, Jason One Stigma Zero, my battle with mental health, mental illness at work and in at home and in the workplace. He's a mental health advocate, stigma fighter. He's a professional speaker and has been doing that for quite a while. I believe since 2006, I, I remember uh, reading. And founder of Stigma Zero and the instructor of the programs found in the stigma. There's a Stigma Zero online training program. Uh, Jason's worked faced both physical and mental illness and shares his personal experiences and the impactful storytelling techniques blended with um, research uh, to mobilize knowledge and perspective. His goal is to bring everyone to understand the importance of the topic so they're, they're empowered to make a change and ultimately join his vision for future without stigma. That would be so nice as, as uh, someone that's worked in the field, Jason. And uh, I, think we, I think we're coming along, but there's a lot more work to be done. Yeah, I would agree with that. So, um, well, so thanks for taking the time today. And um, I'm uh, gonna just jump right into it and um, ask you, obviously we know, I'm gonna assume we know how you got into speaking uh, about mental health, but tell me a little bit about, about your life. You, did you grow up in Montreal? No, I am an Ontario boy, actually. Oh. I, I am, I was born in Newmarket and I lived, uh, for, I was born in 75 and the first 26 years of my life, I lived within a hundred kilometers of Toronto. Wow. I was, yeah, I was in Newmarket and then in Toronto briefly. And then I uh, went to high school in Orillia, Ontario, right. uh, an hour and a half north of Toronto. And I went to University of Waterloo. And so the, the seeds of me being a public speaker um, as a profession were, were honestly set early. It was one of the skills that I just, at an early age, I remember giving a, uh, I think I read a poem at a, um, I don't know, a Christmas special or something at my school. I was in grade four. My, <laughs> my dad my dad was blown away that his son, because my dad hates public speaking, and here his son was up on the stage in front of hundreds of people, comfortable. And it was just one of those things, I, I never was uncomfortable in front of a crowd. And then when I said I went to University of Waterloo, I actually took a degree in theater and speech communication. So I spent four years doing nothing but performing and learning how to perform and learning how performance is interpreted. And that helped me immensely. I, I didn't know at the time I was going to be a, a speaker, but I knew I liked it. And it definitely helped me to hone those skills. Uh, but I moved to Montreal in 2001, actually. Uh, it's, it's easy to remember for a sad reason. I moved just days before 9-11. Oh. That weekend, that Labor Day weekend. And, yes. um, and I've been here ever since. I absolutely love it here. Well, it's amazing your, uh, your, your undergrad like was kind of prepping you for something that you, you know, and now you've been speaking for such a long time. So, so tell me about the, the kind of the, the path, like when you start to struggle, did you, did you kind of know when you were younger um, that there was some issues? I mean, I, you know, I was just actually talking to my son and I was telling him that uh, I, I was about to interview you and I, we talked a little bit. He said, well, what, I said, he said, well, what does he struggle with? So I told him what, from what I read on your site, that it's bipolar that was the struggle. And he goes, well, what is that mom? And I said, well, the only way I could explain to him and in, you know, teenage uh, terms is that there's a lot of high highs and low lows mm -hmm. and the space in between is quite rapid. And he goes, oh, interesting. And he says, oh, 
that seems, you know, don't we all go through highs and lows? I said, yes, but sometimes not at, at such a, a progressive um, level. So I don't know if I, you know, explain that as well as you might be able to do it, um, you know, day to day. I'm sure you speak to a lot of different yeah. people about it. it you're um, definitely part of the way to, to describe it is the, the severity of the change, but it's also the severity of the actual high and the actual low. So an individual who goes through a healthy high or a healthy low, um, the way I describe that as, I mean, as humans, you're absolutely right. We're not just going to exist on one, you know, one plane. We're always going to go above and below what, uh, what I would describe as our baseline, our, you know, whatever is our normal, you know, for energy levels, amount of sleep, etc. But the thing with bipolar disorder is that when the highs come, they come very forcefully. You have no control over it. And in my case, they lasted for weeks and months at a time. So I would be in this elevated state for a very long time with no ability to stop it. And then when I was in a depressed state, whether it was mild, moderate, or severe, that depressed state would descend on me and I would have no control over it. And it would remain, again, for sometimes months at a time. That's not something that you would describe as a normal or healthy experience of highs and lows. And uh, for me, last when it started, um, I, I actually was very late onset of, of bipolar disorder. It's very common for it to begin in the late teens, early 20s. Uh, that would be the more uh, standard time frame. But for me, it, I, I had absolutely no symptoms until my mid-20s and no significant symptoms till I was 26. Wow. So that was very odd um, that, it, that it took that long to, to begin. So when it began, it began with a mild depression and I had never experienced any form of clinical depression in my life up to that point, not for one minute. I mean, every time I'd ever felt down or sad or, or, or low energy, there was a really good, clear reason for it. But now, I, you know, here I was in Montreal. Um, my career was going well. My personal life was great. I had a wonderful girlfriend who I was planning to, you know, propose to. And I had a job I loved working for McGill University. And suddenly I felt awful. And, and it lasted for two months. And that was in 2002, and that was a year after I, I got to Montreal, and that began a cycle of I would go down into a depressive uh, episode for a couple months, and I would go right past my baseline overnight into a hypomanic, which is like mild mania episode, and that would last for a few months, and I just went back and forth for two and a half years before I was finally diagnosed and treated. So at one point, you know, did you start to realize, I mean, I'm going to assume at first you thought, mm, God, this field internally, that's you're going to, you know, something's changing. Mm -hmm. At what point did you start to, to write? Did you recognize it? Did your girlfriend recognize it? Did people at work start to react to you differently? What started to happen that, you know, made you realize something's, something's awry here? Uh, my girlfriend noticed it immediately and she was the most um, on top of it. And also she was the least affected by stigma. She, to her, it was just, there's something wrong here. Like, I think you, you might have a mental illness or you might have depression. She started doing research. I had an enormous amount of stigma towards mental illness without knowing it. And so when it happened to me, there was this long period of denial in my own mind of just, I can't have a mental illness because I was associating mental illness with a character weakness or someone who wasn't trying hard enough or wasn't, you know, willing to do the work. And I knew I was willing to do the work. So I went through this, you know, self stigma is a real problem that I'm now currently trying to solve in others. And that problem basically is when you take all this stigma about mental illness and you apply it directly towards yourself and it causes a massive delay in, in diagnosis and treatment. So as much as I knew something was wrong, I wasn't willing to even entertain the idea that what was wrong was a mental illness. So right. I actually, there was a period there about a year into symptoms that I sought out talk therapy with a psychologist, mm -hmm. which can be a brilliant strategy for a lot of people in that situation. But for me, it wasn't a strategy. It was procrastination. I literally chose talk therapy to avoid the idea that I would be diagnosed and have to take medication. And I was fortunate that the therapist was brilliant and was very astute. And after several sessions, 
listening to me, you know, go over the things I'd gone through in my life to see maybe was this connected to some past trauma? And she was the one who said to me, look, you're, you don't need me. What you have is almost certainly bipolar disorder. She said, I can't diagnose you because I'm a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. But my professional opinion is you need to see a psychiatrist. You probably are going to be diagnosed as bipolar and you almost certainly need to take treatment. And hearing her say that was the first domino of that fell for me of stigma. That was the first time I began to look at my illness as an illness, not as a weakness or a character flaw. And that was the beginning of me. It was, I still had a lot of difficult things to go through, but it was the beginning of me becoming, I guess, coming to terms with, I have an illness that I need to manage. And once I started thinking of it in those terms, I eventually was able to get treatment and, and recover very well and, and live with it very well. Well, I think you had a, an astute um, psychologist that would recognize some that, you know, like myself as a psychotherapist with my training, yeah, obviously, you know, right? Because talk therapy is not going to will you out of this. And like you said, you know, it's not, it's not like there was, there wasn't any drugs happening at that point or anything in your life. So sometimes you kind of try to weed out all the things that potentially could be happening. Was there trauma before age five? You know, all those things as, as a psychotherapist, you're looking for potentially that could kind of impact some of the symptoms that we see with say complex PTSD, but she recognized that there wasn't any of those things. And she kind of started to realize, Oh goodness, this talk therapy is not going to talk you out of this. Um, You know, but somebody without the specialty would not recognize that and would have kept going. Um, You know, and then obviously you'd, you'd, you'd go through those circles, right? Like you go up, you'd go down, uh, which would be even worse on you. So obviously when you're on the high and you can't stop and you're thinking, why can't I stop? And when you're at the low and you can get out of bed and you can't do anything, that's tough on you too. Oh, it was, it it absolutely took my life and turned it upside down because I was suddenly trying to work through essentially, uh, you know, I went through almost three straight years where I wasn't at my baseline for one minute. I had started, you know, the, the first departure from my baseline was a depression and then I went directly up and then back down and then up and then down. And it went like that for almost three straight years that is an incredibly long time to never feel like yourself. For sure. And, and so that, that, you know, and it affected work for sure. Both the highs and the lows affected work. You asked if people were noticing. When it was mild, it was less obvious because mild depression, you can just seem a little distracted or tired or, you know, maybe you're, you, you write it off like, oh, maybe you've got a flu or something. Um, if, you, if you are mildly hypomanic, that is extremely hard to notice if you're a colleague because the, the symptoms really are so close to a type A personality with energy. It's, mm-hmm. it's really not that different, but where the difference lies is in your personal life because you suddenly need less sleep. Mm-hmm. Your energy never goes away. It's 24 seven. Even when you're asleep, I, I described my sleep during hypomanic and manic uh, phases as active. It was like you're, there was this sort of constant buzz of energy going through your body. And your colleagues might not notice a mild hypomanic phase, but your partner will. Because they'll notice that you're like, Wait, why are you suddenly only getting six hours a night when you used to get seven or eight? You know, and, and why do you wake up at six in the morning when you used to drag your butt out of bed to the shower? Now you're jumping out of bed with all this energy. I mean, that's a big change. Mm-hmm. And so the key, that's why knowing your baseline is so important. If you're going to try to determine what's happening to you in the realm of a mental illness, you need to know what is your healthy normal. Because like one of my friends, his healthy normal is five hours sleep a night. That's normal for him. That's good for him. It works for him. If I did that every night, I'd be sick. (laughs) There's no way I could do that. So these are important things to understand about yourself. And I, I had figured that out, but when I look back at the way I went through all of this, in no way would the experience have been easy or simple, even if I did not have stigma towards mental illness, but it would have been far easier, far faster. I would have sought treatment much earlier and I would, it would have been far less painful for sure if there was no stigma from the outset. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned at the beginning in my bio, there is a key experience that I went through that really helped me ultimately get to this realization. 
And that's why my book is called Jason One, Stigma Zero. It's because I finally beat stigma. It, mm -hmm. Stigma owned me for a long time. And then I finally found a way to beat it. And the way I beat it was to uh, look back on the experience I'd had when I was 12 years old. I'd had open heart surgery for a heart defect. And when you're a 12-year-old boy and you have a heart defect, you are understandably supported and rallied around as much as you can imagine. I was never judged or questioned or um, nobody asked about my will or my character or how hard I was trying. Uh, nobody questioned the treatments I was given. Everyone recognized that this was something happening to me and I needed empathy and support. And I never judged myself. I didn't feel guilty that my heart wasn't working. But when I was in my 20s and my brain wasn't working, I felt all those things. And it was only when I realized what would I have done in my 20s if instead of bipolar beginning, what if my heart problem had come back? It could have. It's a nerve defect in my heart. What if it grew back? Would I have felt ashamed or scared? Would I have not spoken about it at work? Would I have stigmatized myself? Not at all. I wouldn't have done any of those things. I would have talked about it openly because it's a failure in my body that's not my fault. Mm -hmm. And I would have received empathy and support. But because of the stigma around mental illness, none of those things happened. Part of it was my fault and part of it was because others had stigma towards my illness as well. And that was the light bulb moment that, that I realized, wait a minute, we're looking at these illnesses incorrectly. We're treating mental illness as different than illness. It's, it's as though we're treating it as a personality problem. And as long as we can sort that up and separate that out, that's how we can get rid of stigma. And that's how we can begin to respond properly to the instances of mental illness in our lives, whether it's personal or professional. So did you, did you continue to talk about it with a professional or did you kind of get support from your family, from your, your partner to be able to kind of the self-realization, Hey, I, it's something there's, there's an imbalance bottom line, right? Like, I mean, cause I often say to my clients, you know, I said, if I fell and broke my ankle right now, you would rush me down to the closest emerge here in Niagara. I said, but if, if, if I, all of a sudden I have a nervous breakdown, nobody would know, or they, they think twice about what they're going to do because we're so afraid of that. But yeah. really what's the difference? One's physical, one's, one's uh, mental and emotional, but we're one system. We're one person. That's right. But we yeah. treat it completely differently, right? We really do. And, it's, and there's no reason for it. And um, the way that I'm, I'm, I'm very, I can be very stubborn and I was stubborn in, in the wrong way for a while in that I had this stigma and I had this resistance to a, a diagnosis of mental illness. Uh, I was afraid of taking a medication. I, I, and I don't know why. I just was. I had a stigma towards it. But when that um, when that psychologist said that to me, it was like, when I say the first domino, I mean, it was literally like that. There was a wall in front of me. She knocked down the first domino and then they just kept going. Mm -hmm. So from that moment on, the stigma just, it evaporated. And I made a conscious decision to treat my bipolar disorder or whatever this illness was that I was facing in the same way I would treat my heart problem, which is mm -hmm. it's an illness. I need to learn about it. I need to manage it. I need to be active in the relationship with my doctors to, you know, understand what I should be doing and not doing. And once I went on that path, uh, as I said, I wasn't, it wasn't smooth sailing. I still had a few very severe depressions. I had a manic episode. I ended up hospitalized as a result of the manic episode, but none of those things happened because of stigma. Those things happened because the illness just, it just became extreme for a bit and I, I had to go through that. But in fact, the ability to get over the stigma just prior to that extreme period helped me to survive that extreme period because I recognized while I was going through it that my body was failing me, that it wasn't me. Right, and right. That gave me hope that all I had to do was find the, the right treatment and I would be able to get back to me. And ultimately, that's what happened. I was, I was diagnosed as bipolar in, in February 2005 while in the hospital and um, after my manic episode. And I was given a new treatment that I'd never been on before, which was lithium. And uh, I, I was told it would take months before it was therapeutic because it's a very tricky drug. You, you, you can't have too much of it in your blood or else it's toxic. So we, we do a stair-step approach. 
you know, kind of creeping up to the therapeutic level. And it was June of 2005 was the end of that three-year run where I had not been at my baseline. I was taking five pills of lithium, so 1,500 milligrams of lithium. And I saw my psychiatrist. I still was depressed. And he said, look, you're, you're not quite at the therapeutic level. We're going to increase it by one more tonight or at now. And he said, take six pills tonight and give it two weeks to three weeks. And if you don't feel any better, come back. We will likely need to add a second medication. And that night, I took six little white pills instead of five. I woke up the next morning, and the first words out of my mouth were, I feel like me. Yeah. I didn't feel – the word isn't better. The word isn't good. The word is, I feel, I feel absent of symptoms of bipolar disorder. I don't feel down. I don't feel up. I just feel like me. And it was the first time in three years. And it was a very exciting moment because I, it gave me hope that, okay, this is a chemical imbalance and I've found the treatment that is correcting that imbalance. Mm -hmm. And from that day on, I have taken the medication very uh, happily. I don't have any uh, compliance issues with the medication because I view the medication as a, as a, a matter of fortune and luck that I even have a treatment that works so well. There's many right. people with, with mental illness that don't find a treatment that works so well. So I take it happily and I have never, since that day of, in 2005, I've never experienced any of the upside of bipolar. No hypomania, no mania at all. I have had some depressive episodes and needed to treat those separately, but that's, that's it. I've only had to manage that side. So you've kind of worked on kind of obviously working with your cognitions and understanding when your when your body's getting run down. You're, you're, are you constantly having to still look at those things, even though you're taking the medications? Because I would think that there's a, you know, I always say there's a psychosocial part to it to learn, you know, just to be able to recognize if you're working a bit too hard or, you know, if you're if there's conflict or whatever, like all of us have to be able to recognize certain things and continue to to work on ourselves. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So there's a term that I use, uh, I've been using for years, and it, it helps me to understand what I need to do to manage my illness. And, and I use it uh, with others to try to get them to see it in this way. But I believe that the only way you can survive a chronic lifelong illness like a mental illness, like, I mean, bipolar is not something that's going to just go away. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's not something that I recover completely from. I have it. So I view it as I need to own my illness. I need to accept it because if I don't fully accept it, then I will always resent the treatment. I will be sloppy about managing it. I will, you know, maybe get lazy. So mm -hmm. I view it as, yeah, I don't like that I have bipolar. Of course, I'd rather not have it, but I do have it. And so I need to manage this illness and that management doesn't stop. You're absolutely right. I watch and it's not as exhausting as it may sound when you first hear it, but I, I have systems. I have basically charts that I use to track my mood to say, have I gone above my baseline at any point in the last month? And eventually you start doing it by quarter if, if things are going well. But, <laughs> but I also ask myself very honestly, am I going below my baseline? And if I am, is it a few days? Is it more than a week? Is it two weeks? And so I know I can show you charts that I have uh, been keeping since, well, I actually did them retroactively all the way to, to uh, 2000. And I've, I have them to today. They're annual charts. And they simply show, is my mood above or below the baseline? That is so vital for me to, uh, you know, understand trends, understand, uh, yeah. for example, if a depressive episode happens, I always ask myself, okay, what happened the previous three months? As you say, was I run down? Was I overworked? Was I doing too much? And I have become quite good at finding my, uh, what I, I consider it as an energy output balance. Uh, I can only do so much in every day, so much in every week, so much in every month. If I go beyond that, I will pay a price. And usually that price is a very short depressive episode of one to five days. Mm -hmm. I minimize how often those happen by managing my energy output. So that is active ongoing thing that I do. And, uh, you know, and a, a big way I do that is sleep. Um, I'm someone, as I say earlier, you know, five hours a night would be awful for me. Uh, I like seven to eight. Mm -hmm. If I get six hours of sleep on any given night, it's no big deal. 
but I make sure the next night I get seven or eight. You catch up. Don't allow six, 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 because that will absolutely affect me. And I know that. Mm -hmm. Um, If I have a huge work day, you know, I got to put in a 15 hour work day where I'm really, really, you know, or I'm in a crunch. I never let my crunch sort of schedule last longer than three to five days. Then I pull completely back, shut it off and rest. And those are the ways that I've been able to manage uh, the illness. And what has resulted is in the last five years, I average two to three very short depressive episodes a year. And that's, okay. that seems to be all that I'm, I'm having to deal with. And they're predictable. When they come, I know as soon as they hit me, I wake up and I feel, it's like I get the flu. I feel awful. I feel exhausted. I feel my mental acuity is suddenly gone. And I, I, don't, I don't experience depression like sadness. For me, it's more like um, being shut off. It's like you're, you're underfed. Your energy levels are super low. You don't have access to any kind, of, any kind of fire or energy. And I just simply shut it down and rest. I clear my calendar and I rest for a couple of days. Um, and, and I always, so far, knock on wood, that you know, they only last three to five days and I bounce back and I feel great after that. So, so the people around you, they must be, I mean, you, you must, do you have a family, Jason? No, I am married, but. Uh, okay. So, but your, your wife must know that, or I, I know you have a business partner too. Yes. So they're, they're kind of, I'm sure you talk about this, the things that you're experiencing. If you're, if you're, you realize goodness, I, you know, I'm on a crunch or whatever. So they are kind of aware of what kind of things are happening with you. Absolutely. And, and okay. one of the things about speaking openly about an illness, and, and for a second, let's not think about it as a mental illness. Just think about it as an illness. If, if you were uh, in the midst of chemotherapy treatments because of cancer, if, if you planned on doing this meeting and, and, and having this interview with me, but then something, you had an adverse reaction to your chemo treatment on Friday, you didn't recover fast enough, you would tell me. You would say, look, I'm going through treatments. Yeah what's happening. I can't have this meeting for that reason. And we would, anyone in my position would feel nothing but empathy for you, recognizing that you've got this challenge that you're, you're struggling against. And we would say, okay, no worries. We'll reschedule. That's the attitude I bring to my mental illness. If it interferes with my life, I speak openly about it to anyone that I am, um, that I'm interacting with. So my wife knows, my family knows, my friends know, and my business partner knows. And that is very important. You need caregivers in your life who can support you and who understand that what you're facing is an illness. And it's something that is beyond, you know, it's beyond your control and it, it deserves that empathy. Obviously if I was having an issue, um, say with a, a chemotherapy treatment, you would be very understanding and, you know, you would say, okay, Roxanne, no big deal. So it's really yeah. about sharing at the same level. Sharing at the same level, and, and here's the thing about stigma that's, that's fascinating, is that if I have, a, like I did, a stigma towards my own illness, if I'm uncomfortable speaking about bipolar, then I'm going to talk in circles around it, and that right. is going to make you very uncomfortable about what you can say to me, because right. you'll understand, you'll actually, um, uh, you will sense my discomfort, and you will mm-hmm. want to respect my privacy, and it will tie your hands. But if I speak openly about bipolar disorder, it frees you up to do the same thing. Mm -hmm. So it's an unfortunate reality, and I've said this to a lot of people that I've spoken to who have their own, um, they have a mental illness and they're afraid of the stigma. I say to them, it's counterintuitive, but the best way for you to fight stigma is for you to defeat it first and then just start speaking about this as frankly and as flatly as you would any other illness oh i lost you again didn't i Hmm. you're frozen We keep. Uh, <laughs> I've never had that happen before. Is it? It's, I don't know. It's. It just says. Uh, does it say that your internet is unstable? No, my internet's really strong. Okay, it's saying mine is for some reason. So I apologize about That's that. Okay. Um, yeah, because 
I don't see any delay on my end. You just freeze uh, from my Okay, okay, okay. Strange. So, you know, with, with, so your point is that the more comfortable you get with it as the person, people around you will get more comfortable, which I think is, a, is so, so true. Right. That said, let's talk a little bit about the workplace and kind of, I know that's, you, you, you know, you do a lot with um, Stigma Zero with workplaces and um, you're lucky and fortunate to be in a space to be able to be around people that you work with that understand it. But to the average person in, in work, um, what do you find that you're seeing out there when you go out to do trainings for Stigma Zero? I am seeing, I am seeing that there is a lot of truth in the way you said it at the beginning of this, uh, this interview. We are headed in the right direction, but we have a long, long way to go. So right. people, people are um, less stubbornly stigma, stigmatic towards mental illness. So in the past, people would actually defend their intellectual position as viewing uh, depression as a weakness. You're not going to hear that as much anymore. I think people recognize that that's not, you know, that's not a strong place to stand. And they see that, that we need to look at it in this way. But getting to the place where people feel comfortable telling their manager about the fact that they're struggling uh, with a diagnosis of, or maybe pre-diagnosis, but they suspect they might have anxiety disorder, for example, that is still you know, very uncomfortable in a lot of workplaces. And it depends on the relationship with the managers, the HR, etc. And that's why we built the program that we built. Um, this online program is, it's called Create Your Stigma Zero Workplace. And we're simply trying to train employees, managers, and HR and senior leaders. We have three different tracks, uh, trying to train them in how to have these discussions. And we're also challenging the companies to recognize that if you want your employees to feel comfortable speaking to their managers about a mental illness, you need to establish a culture that, is, that won't allow stigma to exist. That's not going to happen overnight, but it can happen. And in fact, it can happen faster than you think if everybody gets on board and it's communicated properly. Because people want the stigma to end. They're just not sure how to make that happen. And they need to trust that it's happening on both sides. So some of the things are, um, we, do, we do say to employees, Look, you have to protect yourself. You can't, you can't talk about it if you feel that you will be discriminated against. But we also challenge them that if you see the company is heading in that direction and doesn't, you know, doesn't want to allow stigma, then it is partly your role to participate in this culture change. Mm -hmm. And if you feel good with your manager and your HR person to talk about it and to, to, to recognize that you have a right for reasonable accommodation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that reasonable accommodation might be very simple and minor, like slight schedule changes that allows for you to live and work in a healthy way. And, um, I'm hearing a lot of static all of a sudden. Are you? Okay. It just, it just came and went though. I think it's okay. okay. Anyway, so, um, the... The other thing that we focus on a lot in the workplace is recognizing that managers actually have a very difficult role because HR are trained to deal with these sensitive to topics and conversations. Managers are just people who were good employees and who elevated to the level of manager in their area. That doesn't mean they necessarily know how to sit down and have a conversation with someone about depression. That is not easy to do in the workplace. And I believe that managers have been undertrained for a very long time in this area. How do you have that conversation in a way that respects the individual, that respects you as a, as a person, and respects the company? And how do you know when you should be bringing HR in versus mm -hmm. when you don't need to bring HR in? These are all delicate questions, and we spend a lot of time in our program covering that, how to respond as a manager in very tangible ways. You know, here's a scenario. You have, a, uh, you have a, a team member who has been an amazing, you know, like a pillar of your team for seven years. Great work, consistent, everything's good. And suddenly their work drops off, their energy levels are low, they seem distant. Now at that moment, you have no idea whether the reason this has happened is because their parent is dying, they're getting a divorce, 
they've recently started struggling with alcohol or they have a mental illness. It could be anything like that. Mm -hmm. The question becomes, how do you have a conversation with that team member without invading, invading their privacy, but showing them support and giving them their due, which is, look, you have been a great employee for a long, long time, but you haven't been yourself these last three weeks. I just want you to know if there's anything that I or the company can do to help you, let us know. You don't, you know, like that kind of conversation can happen. And often when it starts with that level of emotional intelligence and empathy, the employee will disclose because they will feel comfortable. That's right. And I mean, and they have to accommodate them. Like that's the thing, you know, if, you know, and if, if, if it's the uncomfortability of the manager for whatever reason, like you said, you're even yourself stigma, that person has to recognize you've got, you're in this, you're in this, uh, authority position because you get tactical things done, but you're dealing with people and to recognize That's what right. kind of thing you do to make people comfortable to say, yeah, you know, actually, you know, I'm going through a separation or, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been not sleeping well, or, you know, I've been maybe drinking a little bit more and, you know, of course they could go off and see EAP services, whatever is to be able to know how to have that conversation in a kind, caring way to say, I support you. I see you, I hear you, I recognize that you need something, go get the assistance, we'll loop back. But a lot of people are so afraid because it's like, well, I'm stepping into their personal life. Well, to some degree, just being kind and gentle is the best way to do that. Absolutely. And I also remind companies that, look, I, I lived it. I lived it as an employee, right? I was the employee who was sick. And yes, stigma caused a lot of challenges in there, but that, that does not absolve me I signed a contract with my employer to do a job and now my health is getting in the way of doing that job. Mm. The employer is not at fault at all. It's, it, and I know I'm not at fault, but I am responsible mm -hmm. for finding a way to either work within the bounds of my new reality, which is this illness is limiting me in my job. So maybe I need to take a leave of absence or maybe I need a reasonable accommodation, but I can't just shut down and say nothing to my employer that completely ties their hands. Right. I'm doing a job and accepting payment for that job. Part of that responsibility is that communication. Now there is the other side of the coin, which is if you have a truly negative stigmatized manager who might discriminate against you, then of course you might be afraid to discuss it. And that's the, the, the global problem we're trying to change. But what I'm seeing in a lot of workplaces is that, that is not as common anymore. It is there, but there are fewer and fewer truly mean-spirited, discriminatory people when it comes to mental illness. It's mostly just that their empathy and their emotional intelligence is a little low and they need to understand. They, they're not seeing the mental illness as an illness. And they're, they're caught in the trap I was in originally, which is that, ah, it's just, he's, he's just distracted and lazy you know, they're, they're writing it off as a personality thing. And I'm finding that once people are fully grasping the physicality of mental illness, they begin to treat it more like the cancer or the broken leg or the other analogies that we've been using. They recognize it as, as I always say, something that happened to that person, not something that they did wrong. That's a very simple turn of phrase, but it's powerful because... Right, right. When, when I see that you did something to yourself, I feel a little less empathy for you. Mm -hmm. But if I see that it happened to you, my instinct is going to always be to have a bit more empathy. And that's so important. So it's really, I mean, if we can get raise pe people's empathy levels to just say, you're working with people, regardless of what the issue is, if someone's struggling, just, you know, don't, it's not always performance related issues. It may, it may show up that way, but why is that, if that person has been a stellar employee for five years and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're recognizing something's progressively changed, or maybe it's changed a little bit over time. It's about having just a normal conversation, a two-way conversation to say, hey, I've noticed X, Y, Z, which is factual, to get the, the employee to be able to elicit some, some kind of information. Yeah, you know, I know I've been late lately, lately, but this is what's been going on, whatever. Okay, you kind of get them the right support. But if people are, are afraid to think, if I have depression and you're my employer and you're going to judge me, then I'm going to shut down and that's not going to help anybody involved. Not at all. It just, it just drags out the problem. And, um, and you know, the studies have shown over and over and over again that it's actually not the absences 
that are costing the most when it comes to the lost productivity about mental illness, it's presenteeism. It's people yes. trying to work through their illness and doing so at, let's say, 60% capacity. Mm-hmm. If you have a workforce of 10,000 people and 2,000 or 3,000 of them are working through an illness because they're afraid of disclosing it and they're working at 60% capacity, that is so much worse than a few of them taking a leave of absence and then coming back when they recover. And so uh, one of the things I have to, to train my uh, clients about is that a successful implementation of a program like this will, in the first 18 months to two years, show an increase in medical absences due to mental illness. You can't avoid that. There are people currently who need them, who will now get them. And if you think of that as a bad outcome, you're missing the point. In fact, that has to happen. But what will happen is many of those individuals will now find a way to recover, find treatments that work for them, and then they'll come back. Mm -hmm. And they will be productive employees. And the faster we can get that process going, the better. And another analogy that I use that, that does work very well to get companies to understand why they need to address this actively or proactively is that imagine if you had a company of a thousand people of whom 600 were women between the ages of 21 and 31. And you just were thinking, I really hope none of them get pregnant. (laughs) You would be a pretty foolish business, right? If you didn't have policies and plans in place for mat leave, you're just not doing your job. You're just, you're just, you've hit the sand. But that's what's happening with mental illness. Companies are hoping to not have to deal with it rather than proactively dealing with it. And unlike a mat leave where you physically show and then you, you know, you've got to disappear while you go and give birth, you can actually work with a mental illness for years at 50, 60% capacity and, 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 and kind of go under the radar. That is not good for the company and it's not good for that individual. So a lot of this and it's not good for morale too, because oh, I'm going to, yeah. of course, but you know, if I come forward and I'm not treated well, the, how many people are not going to come forward that are at 60%. So if you, you know, if you do it well with the person coming forward, then others are going to say, you know, I recognize there's assistance for me. I can get the right kind of support. And then you, like you said, in that benchmark of the 18 months or two years, then people kind of get the right things where that short-term disability doesn't come become a turnstile, but it actually, someone goes off, they get the appropriate treatment, they get, um, you know, the appropriate medication and they, they come back to work and they learn to accommodate accordingly until they can kind of do that work hardening to get back to up back a hundred percent to their job. Extremely well said. That's exactly one of the main points that we make is that, mm-hmm. is that if you encourage people to come forward and then mishandle it, you will you are missing such an opportunity and you will shut a lot of people down for a long time because they're watching Mm -hmm. and there's another thing that we do and this is an important thing we have had companies ask us we like your program what if we just wanted to do managers or what if we just wanted to do hr and we always say to them look you can do that but it won't work this cannot train a part of your organization on this topic this has to be done wall to wall, every employee all the way up to the CEO. And the reason is everyone else needs to trust the other has taken the same thing and is on the same page. Because if I'm an, a manager, how am I supposed to help my employee if they haven't taken this training? Right. And if I'm an right. employee, how do I trust my manager if they haven't taken this training? It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs to be like, we're trying to turn the Titanic here you know, in, in the sense of culture change is slow and difficult, but it's possible if everyone gets behind it, everyone communicates it. And, and there's precedent for this. It's, it's happened over and over again. I mean, it's still sadly happening in, in a lot of places with sexism, but there is a way to go from in the fifties and sixties, overt sexism in the workplace was not only commonplace, it was totally accepted. And now overt sexism in the workplace is 100% not Except, mm-hmm. and that culture change is something that can happen, and that's something that we can do in this 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 topic of mental illness and stigma. We can create a, a world where having a stigma towards mental illness is just not appropriate. It's not acceptable. It's not okay. And the more people get on board with that, the faster that it actually does change. 
And I think you're so right, right? You go from the kind of the macro to the micro. You have to, you have to hit everybody to understand exactly what depression is or what is, you know, an anxiety disorder or a seasonal defect, like whatever the issues are, which will come, like we know, and we know that it's on the increase, uh, be it more situational, which is, could be versus endogenous or biological, mm -hmm. like People should know that they, you know, even if they are going through something, if you've gone through a death, for instance, yeah, you're going to be upset. You're going to be down. But, you know, when is it that it's, you know, the time period before you could kind of, you know, get back and have dealt with it versus, oh, this is still continuing. That's right. Uh, you know, it's something a bit more. So I think it's, you're so right because, and a lot of people go, it's mental, it's a mental illness. Uh, I, I don't know what to say. And they, then they don't, they don't manage their employees because they're just afraid to have normal conversations instead of saying, Hey, Jason, how are you doing? They're thinking about how they're going to say hi to Jason because they're afraid they're going to trigger something, which is completely ridiculous. Yes, exactly. You don't, no one with a mental illness wants to be treated just like no one with a physical illness, like a, like a cancer or anything like that wants to be treated that differently. We just don't want to be stigmatized and don't want to be discriminated against. It's, it's not that complicated. And, and when you realize it that way, it's, that's a big part of what we teach in, uh, in this program that it's demystifying. A lot of it is, is that it's just bringing clarity to right. the, these terms and these, you know, the types of language that is good and that isn't. And, um, there's one exercise that I do in my keynotes and I do it in the program as well. Um, and it's, it, I find it so effective. It's to let people know, look, don't, it's, don't feel guilty that you have stigmatized thoughts towards mental illness. It is our society has set us up for it. To, it's like a trap that we fall into to be stigmatized or to have stigma towards mental illness because we have listened and heard unbelievable numbers of words that are stigmatized towards mental illness that we've not heard towards other things. So I, I do this. I say, I'd like you to save space. It's going to be a bit weird but I'd like you to come up with the worst, most stigmatized, most discriminatory words you can think of about mental illness. And I'll start. So I say psycho, crazy, nuts. And then I get them to go. And they're always uncomfortable at first, but then they go. Then the words start coming. And then they keep coming because there are a lot of them that we know. And so I actually create this chart that I show afterwards. It's got a hundred words in it. All discriminatory words about mental illness. And then I, afterwards, I showed them a the chart and I'm like, look, these are words that have been fed to us throughout our lives from movies, television, and people around us. We have a vocabulary to draw upon to be stigmatized about mental illness. Mm -hmm. Now I say the same question. Think of discriminatory, stigmatized, negative, judgmental words this time about breast cancer. Mm. Room goes silent can't think of one because right, you don't think right. of it as something that happened that the woman did wrong. It's something that happened to her. And so my point in doing that is to re to really get rid of stigma is a little bit like losing weight. It's actually a discipline. You have to watch your diet and you have to make choices and you have to work out. You have to choose to lose weight. You won't just lose weight easily. It's, mm -hmm. it's a choice and it's a process. Stigma is one of those things. You can, you can say, I, I intellectually agree that mental illness is not that person's fault, but you still have to choose not to think those negative thoughts because they're just there. Not because you're a bad person, because the words would right. be... Absolutely. And it's, and it's ongoing. It's ongoing. And you have to, um, you know, commend people that are making the changes even when nobody's looking yes. uh, to, you know, I think that becomes very important. And obviously with me, you know, seeing it from, you know, I've worked trauma in frontline with the police all the way up to running different facilities with mental health and addictions and, and in corporations. So I've seen it at every end. Yeah. It's really about recognize we're people and we all are going to have something. We all have something that we deal with on an ongoing basis and with it on the rise, we have to recognize that we need to support people so that they can live the best lives possible. And it's, this training program sounds amazing, um, Jason. So why don't you tell people, um, anyone that, um, if it's companies that could are interested in the training and for also for about your book, where they can reach you to once, and I know the release is about to come soon. 
Yes, thank you. So the program and the book are both available at, uh, it's www.stigmazero.com and it's uh, zero spelled out. So S-T-I-G-M-A-Z-E-R-O.com. And the, the website is, uh, it very clearly explains what the Stigma Zero Online Training Academy is and how we offer uh, employers. This is definitely a B2B offering. Um, that said, if there are any individuals out there who wish to take the program, uh, we don't, we're, we're not closed to that. It's just that that's not our main model. Um, we do encourage you to reach out to us if you're interested uh, for that. We don't want to hold, you know, we're, we're not trying to limit it. Um, on the website, you can, you can uh, try to get started right there and it sends us a note and we create, uh, we create a meeting. Uh, we, this is not something that is, is purchased online immediately. We always want to have a consultation, provide a demo of the course uh, so that each, each company can really get a sense of what it is that we're trying to do. And then we offer a full onboarding guideline on how to get this thing going within a company. Uh, and as for my book, uh, at the same website, there is a tab that says simply book. The book is called Jason One Stigma Zero, My Battle with Mental Illness at Home and in the Workplace. And that will be released in print, ebook, and audiobook formats in March. I actually don't have a date yet, but if you go to uh, the book page of our website, you'll see there is a spot for a pre-order request. If you pop your email in there, you'll get an email when the book is available. So, awesome. Yeah, awesome. thank you so much. Can't wait to, to read it. Sounds uh, quite interesting from our conversation today. And, um, you know, when I listen to, to Jason DeBreed enforces so many things that I talk about, I, I talk about being authentic, but, you know, if we're going to be connected to ourselves really internally, our map is our map and whatever we're given, we're given. And we have to learn to deal with whatever's happening for us. And we all have different things going on in our lives all the time. And um, just to stay connected to yourself as much as possible, whatever those needs are, if it's, if it's anything from, you know, I'm, you know, mentally ill to I've got something going on that's situational that may be making me feel uncomfortable to go forward. If you're at work, uh, be able to approach the people that you know are sensitive and kind. But if you don't go forward, then nobody can assist you to get whatever you're needing, whether it's an accommodation or just you being able to sit, you know, take some time off to be able to address these concerns. So thanks again, Jason, for uh, coming on. And uh, maybe we'll, we'll have you on again at some point once the, once the book's released. And uh, for anybody trying to um, get more information on me uh, about um, authenticity and leadership, you can reach me at RoxanneDurhodge.com. Take care and uh, we'll chat with you next week. Thanks for tuning in to Authentic Living with Roxanne, creating the space for positive, healthy change. Roxanne is a keynote speaker, psychotherapist, and coach. To work with Roxanne, visit roxanderhajcom slash blueprint. We'll see you next time on Authentic Living with Roxanne.